Hey guys, for those of you that haven't joined us before, I'm John Harris. I'm a professional drummer and educator and best friends with me, Ben Jones. I am a professional bassist and educator. And over the last 15 years, we've been working, laughing and living together, navigating the ups and downs of teaching in higher education and having a jolly old time in the UK music industry. This podcast is our way to open the doors of our friendship and professional lives to discuss all things music and life. Welcome to our podcast, Beats and Best Friends. Hello, mate. Hello, mate. How's it going? Very well. How are you? Very good. Episode two, can you believe it? It's crazy. I know. Madness. How you been? Good. I'm quite tired. Yeah? Not going to lie. It's been a busy week. What have you been up to? I have been teaching a lot this week. So, for those of you that are listening, it is January, and not so many gigs, it's quite a quiet month, but a lot of teaching. And we've had three weeks off from Christmas. Indeed. And I don't know about you, but I feel like teaching like I do about the gym and fitness. If you go away from it for like three weeks, you go back and you're like... I can't lift anything, my heart's going to explode, <laughs> and even five minutes of teaching feels like I've been doing it for five weeks. Like, you really do need to be, like, match fit for this stuff. Like, I taught on Monday, three hours back to back, and I was like, I'm fried, I'm done, I need to go home. Like, that's it, I, my my mental capacity is gone. Like, did you find that this week as well? Yeah, so I was talking to my partner, Claire, and I was saying to her that when I first started teaching here, teaching in front of like you know 30 to sort of 60 students at a time especially in some of the bigger rooms used to stress me out and I when I come back after a break I feel that stress again because I haven't done it for like three weeks and then after the first lesson I'm straight back in the swing but for that first week I get back in I'm like oh god what yeah. am I doing? Who am I? What's my name? This is really ner- like nerve-wracking and it takes me a while to get back into the flow of things. Do you get nervous about like you, your teaching, like imposter syndrome and stuff like that when you've been away for a bit? Um, yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, do you feel that in general? I get, I get a lot of imposter syndrome. I, I used to get it a lot more, definitely. Like it's definitely not gone and I would be lying if I said, I've never felt that now. <laughs> but like, I definitely... It's got better, and I tell you why it's got better. It's because I've worked on it, yeah. and I know that you know I can speak for a lot of people here at ICMP, and probably every teacher out there. You know, even if you're not teaching music, you probably get a lot of imposter syndrome anyway. It's true. But think about like being a musician. There's imposter syndrome with that as well. So it's like double bubble. Like I feel as an imposter as a musician, and I feel as an imposter as a teacher, and then you like stack those things up, but. I did a lot of work on it because I spoke to some really good friends who were who were feeling it. Um, I've for you know for those of you listening, like I also am program leader as well, so I lead the program that John and I both teach on, and I think that I definitely feel more imposter syndrome in the leadership sometimes more than the teaching. Interesting. I think I've just done it for so long now, and it's like. You know, you go in and you play songs that you've played a million times and you like you know you're doing a fairly decent job or like you know what you're gonna tell your students as a kind of baseline and then the different people in front of you will throw up different things. Mm. But I think with leadership in particular, it's always changing. So sometimes I really do walk in there and go, 
should I be doing this? Am I good enough to do this? Or like, why should anyone listen to me and stuff like that? So definitely more in the leadership side, I would say. Yeah, I feel actually, I feel this year, probably the most confident I've ever felt teaching and also my playing. And I think that's for one single reason, my studio. So I was lucky enough to get my own studio during lockdown and I basically found this space that I could rent back home and I don't live in London anymore so it's a lot cheaper Hmm. and I basically converted it into a a recording studio so I record drums from there and different bits and bobs and since I've had that space I can go in there shut the door Hmm. practice all my content and also kind of practice teaching in a way Hmm. and I think also I suppose not one single reason there's a few reasons but the other thing I when I go into the classroom now I'm not trying to impress anyone yeah. and I think when I first started <laughs> yeah I was really like I need to prove that I deserve to be here and I need to show them everything I've got whereas now I do actually very little playing in my lessons now and I get the students up to play as much as possible and it's more of a conversation and like I I know that I can do that stuff I don't need to show it and obviously I do demonstrate things there's, there's yeah, you know of course. instances where I need to demonstrate things but I think now I'm like, I've, maybe when I first came into to sort of you know teaching at degree level and also master's level, I was like, I must show them that yeah. I'm I'm their tutor, which is ridiculous. But I know that now. Yeah. So I think I'm a lot more confident with the way I teach. I def. I mean, like obviously we've worked together for years teaching, and like the change. I, I would agree with that. I think the best teaching I've seen from you in the whole time has been, well this year meaning this academic year so when we started last September and I think it's just it's exactly that it's like it's doing less it's like taking the ego and I'm not saying you had an ego before but no, like no. I think we all have an ego as as teachers it's like you know am I being liked yeah is this is this like is this going into their brains are they taking quality away from this and I think one of the biggest problems that we face in higher education and you know listeners out there like please like comment on this I'd love to get your opinions on this if you work in higher education or universities all over the world whatever but like there's this whole thing of like your students are your customers so Mm. they're paying all this money and it's like well what are they getting out of it and they come with that kind of like customer service mentality it's like um i didn't get what i paid for and um you know i want to speak to the manager and it's like well okay i get that but what like we will probably talk about this on another episode but like responsibility of like yourself as a creative and as a like um well as being self-employed like for example i think has really instilled this in me like if i don't make it happen it won't happen like i don't I do now, but before I didn't work for anyone. I worked for myself. And, Mm. you know, if I don't go and look for that work or if I don't put that effort in, if I don't make that thing happen, it's not going to happen. And I think what I've seen a lot over the years is this shift in kind of students kind of turn up and be like, so what are you going to give me then? And I remember when I was a student, I just didn't have that mentality. I walked in there going, what can I take away from this situation? I am like a sponge and all I want to get is everything I can out of it. And I'm not saying that all our students are like that, obviously, like that's not, I'm not throwing shade at that. But I think it's really interesting how the attitudes of students has changed since you and I were at university doing stuff. Mm. And I think a lot of it has come from this kind of, you know, you're paying all this money, so what are you getting out of it? And I'm like, yeah, but you're not buying 
a holiday. You're not buying a car. It's not like a product that you're going to then sort of judge on. Instead, it's like, well, you've paid to come and do an experience, right? You're, you've, you've come to say, hey, I want to give three years of my life and learn music. Yeah. So there's this whole thing about responsibility on both sides. And I think that you can see that in teaching, but you can also see that in the industry where people sort of like rock up and they just expect it to all be done for them or like those people don't tend to be the ones that people really talk about. It's the people who like make it so much easier, who are out to help you. And I think there's definitely something in that about like personal responsibility and also like before before complaining about something or whatever, or having a negative opinion about something, asking yourself that question, and what have I done so far myself yeah. before I reach out? And again, it's like no shade to our students, but it's definitely something that I've noticed. And I didn't have that, and none of the people I remember being on the degree program did have that when we were back in, what, 2010 or something like that, or 2007 or something. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, because when I, the first day, because I'm, I'm really lucky this year to have such an amazing drum class. Like mm. The drum, the drummers on the on the first year of the Beamers this year are amazing, and um, we have such a lovely time. It's really, it's a really lovely hang. Like you know, there's obviously lots of learning going on and lots of playing and stuff, but it's just nice to kind of talk about the industry with them, and they're so kind of excited to get mm. into the industry. But the first thing I say in the first lesson is, look, you know, we're going to be a big drum family this semester. You know, any sort of problems come to me or anything you and any advice, I can hopefully help you out. Yeah, but you're only going to get out of this course what you put in. And totally. it's the I can literally, from day one, I can be like, you're going to be a professional musician, you're going to be a professional musician. And you can you can tell by their attitude. Yeah. And it's interesting as well because some of them might be better players than others, yeah. but it's the attitude because totally. they're the ones that are going to put in the practice time, the research, and just basically looking into the industry, industry themselves. And they're the ones that, it's like slowly start to overtake the ones that yeah. are not putting in as much effort and it's it's all about what you put in because when they finish the degree they've then got to go and get work themselves yeah, exactly. so it's that it's that kind of you know go get it attitude and and sort of hustle and they're the ones that you know making notes and asking all the questions and yeah. getting up and playing and being really enthusiastic it's it's everything it really is yeah i totally agree with that and i think like Sometimes as well, it's more like those have the opportunity to have a have a career in the industry, obviously, because people surprise you. And, you know, over three years, people change and you can you can think, oh, you know, that student's not engaging. You wonder if like, oh, are they enjoying it? Like, do they want to play? Like, mm. you know, whatever. And then suddenly in year two or year three, they suddenly flip and they're like the one who's volunteering for everything. I think it does change. But... I totally agree with you and it you know it's such a cliche thing oh you know you get what you put in but it's so true and I think yeah. it's like there's a reason that's a cliche because it works and um when you when you said about attitude I think I just think that goes such a long way at the moment yeah. because there's this lot of this kind of oh well I'm not going to take any personal responsibility for that so you're wrong and now I don't like you and I'm not going to back down or I'm going to double down and it's like, I really, I really want to see a change in that. And like, I think, I actually think that we do a really good job of that because I think one thing about teaching music compared to other subjects, and I'm not going to say others because I can't, I haven't got really experience enough, but I think music really opens this door and other creative subjects is that so much of it is about people. Music is mm. obviously like, there's a standard you have to play and we know that, but 
it's really you've got to coexist with people. That's where you're going to get work. You know, unless you find yourself in a position where you're on your own on stage, like you know, Ed Sheeran vibe. Even now, he's obviously going out with a band. But like when it was him and his little loop pedals, self-contained. I mean, apart from the crew and the tech stuff, you don't have a band to sort of interact with. But so much of us are working with people. So if you're not working on your people skills, it's it's, it's very unlikely that there's going to be more work in the future. And I think that that's something that so many of us don't give enough attention to and think, well, you know, this whole Instagram thing that we've spoken about with moving away from it, doing behind the beat, celebrating playing with someone else and yeah. having that human connection. Like, so much of that comes out because you're like, oh, well, I've learned my part or I've, you know, whatever, but I still got to make it work with someone. Like, I can't just bring my ego and go, well, I'm playing the right part. So if you're not, you're a problem. It's like, no, no, no. If you're in a band, everyone is under the same scrutiny. If you're, If you don't know your part... Yes, it's your responsibility to to sort that out. But as a team, that's what's under scrutiny here. It's, it's the sound, the overall sound. And I think that that kind of thing can be linked really well into kind of just people's responsibility for what they're doing. Like, are you are you doing anything about it? Or are you just moaning about it? But yeah, so that <laughs> endeth the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, how, we started <clears throat> off saying we've just come back to teaching. Yeah, and as you can tell... <laughs> It's going really it's well. Going really well. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> oh, that was good though. We should. I think at some point we will do an episode on on teaching. Hundred percent. Because it's. I mean, it's you know one of it's fifty percent of what I do really. Gotcha. Um, at, especially at the moment, fifty percent teaching. I'd say, and fifty percent of playing live and touring. So, and also, I'm, I'm. You know, we're both very passionate about it. We also yeah. teach together, and. I think we should do an episode on it. I think it'd be great. Couldn't couldn't agree more. We also uh, will have some students on here as well. Mm. So we've got some quite exciting guests coming up. We've got a few female students. Yeah. Um, massively underrepresented in in the industry, uh, female students um, in female, music. Well, sorry, female players. Yeah, for in, sure. In music, full stop. So, uh, and we've got a few female drummers coming on, which will be yeah. really cool. Loads of stuff. Yeah, I think you know one thing that we're really sort of committed to within our teaching practice and obviously any platform like this that we can have is trying to increase um you know representation across the board of like underrepresented groups and you know one thing that I'm extremely passionate about is leadership in music mm. moving towards female representation you know MDs MDs band leaders all of that stuff because there's just not enough of it. There really isn't. And, you know, we'll, we'll save all of that for the teaching yeah. episode, but I think it's Sounds really good. important. What have you been consuming in your life? TV, music, what have you been listening to over the last few weeks? Because we've been away at Christmas doing all that stuff, but what have you been, what yeah. you been watching? What have you been doing? So one of my favourite artists at the moment is Jordan. Is it Rakai? I think so. Or Ra- Ra- oh, yeah, it could be Reiki. Rakai. Reiki, I think it's Rakai. Rakai. We've probably got that totally wrong and they're like, it's actually Reiki! <laughs> Apologies if it is. So he has been on my radar for a long time. Yeah. There's just something about his voice is just like, it's so smooth mm. and I love his songwriting. Is, is Richard Spavent on drums for Jordan? He has been on some of them, yeah. So, definitely. I mean, the players on the records are amazing. I yeah. just There's something about it, it just speaks to me. So I've kind of had his 
um, I mean, his albums on back to back. Really, one nice. of his um, one of my favourite songs by him is called Borderline, Ooh, okay. and um, it's just beautiful. So I've been listening to him a lot. I've also been listening. So with the drummers today, we did uh, loads of SPDSX stuff. So nice. like basically for non drummers, it's like a sample pad by Roland. So we did loads of trap grooves, oh, nice. which was really cool. Lots of sort of like uh, syncopated grooves and different subdivisions and stuff. And loads of the drummers had never played them, like I wow. played an SPDSX once. So we did that. And so I've been listening to loads of trap stuff this nice. week. So kind of, I mean, drill as well. Yeah. Loads of hip hop and kind of trying to get in that sort of mindset. So it's been kind of cool. What about you? Uh, well, not a lot of music. I've been the music I've been listening to has been basically what I'm setting students. So kind of doing some investigating. So I couldn't be more different in what I've been listening to. <laughs> so our final year students have this like Tuesday class, just performance, not attached to any modules, just for fun. Oh my God, playing music for fun. Like, yeah, trying to remind ourselves why we're doing this. Yeah. So I wanted to give them a really big challenge. Basically, the class is like, I think it's four or five hours. And then I come in uh, after that to do some feedback wow. so they have four or five hours just totally on their own but I give them the task at the start and then they're on their own for five hours so what I gave them was one of the tunes from Disney's Hercules which oh, is like a wow. roast um, called Zero to Hero and first of all I don't know who's going to be in the room so I don't know how many vocalists, how many players we're going to have. And that is like a massive arrangement. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, you know, it's proper old school Disney orchestral, you know, session god sort of people. And um, man, they, they smashed it. It was amazing. That's but good. I just, I love, I just love that film so much. I, and you will <laughs> learn this on this podcast <laughs> that I am a huge Disney geek. But I think I've become more so because of the music. Now I appreciate it. And that is one of the most underrated Disney films. Like the music is unbelievable. So I've been listening to that a lot. Um, Mate, can I interrupt you? I've played I, I literally. So what's this? I can't believe I haven't spoken to you about this. Oh, wow. So I was listening to, so one of my favourite podcasts at the moment is Drum with Mike and Eddie. I think oh, yeah. they're amazing, such a cool podcast, two uh, wicked professional drummers. And I just Big love their Big inspiration for this. Big inspiration as <laughs> yeah. well. And just they're, I, I just love the vibe they've got in their podcast. So I listen to that a lot. They, so Eddie Thrower, who's yeah. one of the guys, he said this morning on one of the podcasts when I was listening to it that the new Nickelback album has come out. Oh, you right? know we love a bit of Nickelback. Mate. Is it so good? It's, so <laughs> it's the biggest guilty pleasure ever. It's because it's good music. It's Nickelback. I mean, it's what can you say? Yeah. Some of the tracks, man, I had it on the car, in on the car this morning. They sound so big, it was almost a joke. Mate. Like some of the grooves and they've got a real nice mix of like, hard-hitting songs mixed with a bit of country mixed with like really beautiful songwriting and the cheesiest harmonies ever but I love it oh mate you're saying all the right things to me like check when you go home tonight check I think it's called what's it called Get Rolling or something like that of course it is Get Rolling <laughs> is it Get Rolling I'm going to check that out mate, in a check minute. that out I think it's Get Rolling but there's um, let me get it up now there's Get, All the sounds along with dirt. Yes, oh man, just you know. everyone loves to hate Chad Kroger, but I think okay, he, he, he definitely did some things that were a little bit shit because you know back in the day, I think you know when they were getting big, I think it went to his head a bit. And I remember in Kerrang, they wrote up this massive article about him being this massive dick because he threw someone out for throwing like some soda at him on stage. But I'm also like. 
that's not cool. Like yeah, throwing throw soda shit. at people. Like you know, I remember. God, I remember Reading, whatever year it was, when Fifty Cent was headlining, and I, I just watched people hurling bottles of piss. Yeah, that's just not okay. Like, and I'm really glad that that sort of stuff doesn't happen very much anymore. Because just for a second, let's just. Let's just remind ourselves what that is. Someone is pissing in a bottle and hurling it at someone, whether you like them or not, has made an impression on the music industry and millions of people have said they are a decent talent, so therefore they're going to be a headline slot. It's so shit that that used to happen. But um, yeah, everyone used to rat on Chad Kroger hard. But I'm sorry, those tunes were killer. And I think a lot of it was like, oh, they're getting big, let's bring them down a little bit, because they were massive. I, I think what it was is they kind of, because it's heavy, Yeah. all the guys that liked heavy music were like, but it's not real metal. Oh, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's that Because totally. it's, 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 it's quite commercial. Everyone kind of loved to hate them. And yeah. it's like, still good tunes. I mean, come on. Silver Side Up is still one of my favourite albums. Mate, so these, so uh, three favourites. Yeah. Standing in the Dark... Nice. One of my faves. Probably my fave. Yeah. Just one more. <laughs> this is just so great. And the other one. Oh, they're just all good. Tidal Waves good. Skinny Little Missy. Brilliant. That's a good one. Uh, ones to avoid. Sorry, guys. But um, Vegas Bomb. <laughs> Vegas Bomb bombed. <laughs> and also, uh, where's the other one? Oh, the worst. Where is it? The, the worst song title ever. Steel, as in the metal. Yeah. Steel still rusts. Steel still still, still rust. rusts. And it's about it's like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Well, no. <laughs> maybe maybe that's a UK <laughs> thing. But I would say delete that. I would say delete that. <laughs> um, what about TV? What have you been? What have you been indulging in the world of streaming and services? I. Myself and Claire went to the cinema and watched the new Avatar movie. Any good? Really good. Long. Long. <laughs> <laughs> but we went, you know, the, the recliner chairs. Mm. We got a like, bit of comfort, you know yeah, what I mean? Got it. Yeah, three and a half hours. Like, it's like a flight. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching Lord of the Rings back in the day on like oh. the old seats. Yeah. And I felt as if I couldn't walk by the end yeah, of it. Yeah. But um, that was really, really good. Really good movie. Beautiful visual effects. And actually the storyline was pretty good. I cried, obviously. You, <laughs> you know me, mate. Quite an emotional soul. It was, it was horrible. There's, there's a bit at the end, and I was just like, no, He's I'm gone. going. He's gone. And then Claire turns and just starts laughing. I'm like, thanks, babe. <laughs> really appreciate that. Thanks for the support. <laughs> what about you? Um, so, well, we were lucky enough for Christmas to uh, get some contributions to get a new TV. Ooh. So we've been looking to upgrade the screen for a while. Um, so, yeah, we've got a nice 65-inch on nice the wall. Way. And what did we watch? We watched, well, we all. my partner and I were feeling a little bit down. We've had a bit of... Um, bit of health issues with our dog mm. uh, which has been a, not a great start to 2023 so where do we go when we feel crap we watch harry potter so watched uh philosopher's stone finished chamber of secrets last night and now tonight is azkaban because those films just make me feel better like we both yeah. we just sit there and go we we could quote them line for line but like they're just their comfort films so we've been watching that finished um uh white lotus really good Oh, really good! I that. It it is brilliant. If you haven't checked it out, both seasons very different, 
totally different cast except one returning person um but really enjoyed that what did we we watched a film oh god what did we watch isn't that terrible oh um oh we uh, my partner Hannah and I we love a bit of a murder mystery so we watched the death on the nile the old okay. Agatha Christie, sort of Poirot, that sort of thing. We just love a murder mystery. So we watched that. That was really good. And that was it, really. It's just, yeah, I've been Harry Potter. Had friends on in the background all the time. Because yeah. it's just, again, just comfort, comfort, isn't it? comfort listening. And nothing else, really. It's, too, it's a bit early for um, 2023 at the moment for new stuff. Although I'm very excited about The Last of Us coming out next week. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes already. Wow. I mean, it hasn't come out yet. Because it comes out next week. I mean, that game was pre- life-changing, yeah. wasn't it? And, like, th- the show will be amazing. So I'm so stoked for that. Mate, amazing. Mm. Right, let's so get, into, get into... It, yeah. yeah, let's get into enough of the chit-chat. No, that chit-chat. I don't care what you've been doing. <laughs> so, yeah, today's episode, uh, we wanted to focus on... The sort of rationale, the reasons why we decided to choose the rhythm sections we did for season one of Behind the Beat, which is obviously our other big passion is Behind the Beat. Now, this podcast came really after we started Behind the Beat. So, you know, for those of you who don't know what Behind the Beat is, it's essentially a online platform for rhythm section tuition, really. John and I are obviously working professional musicians and we've been a professional rhythm section for, well, pretty much as long as we've known each other. And we're super geeks for bass and drums. And so we wanted to open that up to other people and look at rhythm sections and celebrate that, bring them into the light. So that basically takes the form of tuition videos, um, you know, hosted on like YouTube, that sort of vibe. Um, but also we do backing tracks, slow down backing tracks, because obviously we know from being educators, sometimes you need multiple ways of, of learning stuff. And then charts as well. So we try to cover the whole kind of way people learn songs. But really, it's just a chance for us to super geek out over our famous and famous favorite famous musicians and rhythm sections um and bring that to other people so this episode today is going to be talking about season one so season one is four episodes um and episode one of season one is our favorite rhythm section of all time who is that john Pino Palladino on bass and steve jordan steve jordan now let's go Let's go rhythm section by rhythm section, shall we, and talk about each one. So, yeah. Ben, why did we pick this first rhythm section? Well, I know why I wanted to pick it, and mm. I think it might be the same reason as you. I think everyone as a musician goes through those times where you hear something that changes you in some way whether it's like I have to sound like that I want to play that lick I want to be that person and like for me as a bassist I you know I grew up in my sort of career as a pop punk bassist so I was playing super simple stuff like not simple but you know what I mean um like Blink-182 all that sort of stuff and then I went to music college um and heard Stuff like Motown, like Jaco Pastorius, like Marcus Miller for the first time. And I was like, what is this? Mm. So then I was like, okay, so it's all about the chops. It's all about the licks. It's all about the sound. So obviously when I was studying it, I was doing that stuff. But it never, I don't know, it never really resonated with me in the way that I was like, oh, I feel really passionate about this. I felt passionate because I felt like I should do. 
because these are the fast people. This is where the like the good players are. And then, nice. I remember one album changed my life, Continuum by John Mayer, because I knew a bit about Pino. I knew about the '80s stuff and the fretless stuff and and a few other bits. I never really understood what bass and songs really meant. I only knew like licks and you know like the solo players. And I remember one of our tutors said, oh, you know, this album's just come out, like, check it out, it's amazing. And I'd never heard John Mayer, ever, never heard. The first time I heard John Mayer was in a Styles class where, for blues, Vultures was in the pack. And I was like, the live version, I was like, this is so cool. And then I listened to Continuum, and at the end of that, I knew what sort of bassist I wanted to be. I didn't want to be licks. I didn't want to be super flash. I wanted to work with songwriters. I wanted to work with artists and I wanted to make music. And the way that Pino and Steve and John, I mean, just the, the whole thing of that album was so good. It was just, I can't really explain how much it changed me as a player because I was like, oh my God, it's not about licks. It's about sound. It's about taste. It's about the song. It's about discipline. It's about putting your ego aside, but then also being able to be yourself. Like Pino, for me, has one of those incredible balances of sounding exactly like himself and having all of these little nuances that when you listen, you go, oh, it's Pino Palladino. And then fitting in any song that he ever plays on and just just disappears into the song like he's been there the whole time. And you're like... Man, how well, I know how you do that. You do it your entire life and then you get better and better, right? But like he is just the master of that. So that for me was where bass playing changed. And then after that, where the light is. Yes, that that DVD is just one of the best gigs of all time. Ever. 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 And I'd I'd you'd I never would, reproduce it. I would that I would put it out there. That's the best, yeah, probably one of the best things I've ever seen. Yeah, I would, I would, I would put some money on that. Yeah, absolutely. And like that one, and then um, the live in New York was it the Boiler Room or the the Blues Room? There was that like the trio just before one. they did where the light is. The trio went out yes. and did that gig. Another and one. I remember coming back from gigs with you when we used to live in Ealing. Yeah, you know, had a few drinks and then like late, 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 put that on and we're like, this is just amazing. So for me. I thought if we're going to celebrate rhythm sections, yeah, where else to start? But well, I think as well, so, you know, sort of our friendship has been built around music mm. and because it, it it wouldn't have been right if we didn't do this as our first one. Yeah, it'd be weird. It's, you know, we've grown up on this. We've, like I say, our friendship's kind of, you know, evolved around this rhythm section. And for me... Like I basically we we did waiting on the world to change, didn't we, this week with the students? Yeah. And a lot of the drummers have never heard Steve Jordan before. So we kind of talked talked about kind of, you know, how he sort of impacts a song. And there's there's just something about his playing that I the first song for me that I heard from Steve Jordan was um I Got a Woman. Oh yeah. And you know the live one where that kind of drumming show try and I heard that and first of all it was the overall groove that mm. kind of really sort of like slapped me in the face I was like oh my god who is that 
the fact that they'd all also started the song off with a groove. Yeah. So John Mayer had obviously been like, Steve, you're amazing. Let's have some of that yeah. groove. So the whole vibe of that song was basically started by his drum groove. So that was like number one. Yeah. Then the sound of his kit. I've, I've never heard anything like <laughs> yeah. it before. And the way that everything was placed in the right place and all of the sort of like the, the dynamics and all the voices were exactly where they should be. And then he got into the song and his relationship with Pino was something that I've never experienced before. Yeah. And coming from sort of like a metal background yeah. and then going to London and sort of studying music and doing stuff like, you know, hip hop and funk and soul. I, I loved all that stuff. And that's kind of what I started to gravitate towards. Yeah. But when I heard Steve play, I was like, I want to play. I basically want to play what he plays. Yeah. And there's so many drummers out there that are massive idols of mine, but he, I think, will always have my heart. Yeah. I think he's just yeah. the the ultimate session player. And, you know, considering when Charlie Watts died, yeah. they were like, oh, who should we get? Let's get Steve Jordan. You know, yeah. imagine getting that phone call. Oh, by the way, can you come and come and tour with the Rolling Stones? Yeah. That's, you know, one of the greatest bands of all time. It's He's just, he's so adaptable. He's so musical. He's a producer as well. He's, he's like, his yeah. credits are ridiculous. And I just like his attention to detail as well. Like So Michelle John, who I gig with with Odyssey, she used to do backing vocals for Eric Clapton mm. and Steve's done tours with her before mm. and he used to tour with like 40 snare drums yeah, it's crazy. and just his like attention to sound and detail and I just I like his whole approach and I, I like that kind of vintage sound that he's got with his drums yeah. like he's really kind of big into that sort of vintage sound and, and sort of big sort of tone tonal drums and yeah. that kind of warmth that I, I kind of get when I hear his playing so there was I mean you can tell I like him can't you <laughs> <laughs> but that's get a room we, get man a room. but that's I think that's the reason we it was just it wouldn't have been right if we hadn't no. chose them because they're both you know our favourite players yeah. and as a rhythm section they're just out of this world yeah and I think in terms of song choice we could have chosen so many from Where the Light Is because obviously for those of you who haven't heard Where the Light Is I think for me the reason why it's so ridiculous is it's three gigs in one so John Mayer comes out does an acoustic set Brings out his um, David Ryan Harris and uh, Robbie McIntosh for a couple of songs at the end. Yeah, that's cool. <clears throat> I mean, if I'd gone and just seen that, I would have been, yeah, I'm happy with that. Then he brings the trio out and then he does the full band. Mm -hmm. This gig was next level. And you think, okay, it's one thing to do three gigs at once. That's insane. Yeah, that is mental. That's mental. But everything better each time and you can tell that he is having the greatest day of his life like the way he plays the way he introduces things that there was something special in that night and i'm you know imagine if they didn't capture it yeah imagine going to a gig and going, oh did you ever hear about that john mayer gig oh, yeah the where the light is tour yeah they never recorded it but man it's the best gig i've ever seen i'm so grateful that we're in a world where we can capture this stuff to the quality yeah. that i mean that live sound is unbelievable so there are so many songs we could have chosen there's so many John Mayer songs we could have chosen, but we wanted to focus on obviously Steve Pino and um, John's work in the trio because John himself says it nothing feels like that, yeah. and it's no no disrespect to any of the incredible players he plays with. He said it's just different. I walked in and I played with these two, and something changed in me. Yeah. And I know 
fuck me and I know what that feels like do you know yeah. what I mean like not <laughs> you know when I played with John Mayer I really felt that too no but like <laughs> I've that's very similar to how I felt mm. when we met and we played yeah. and I was like oh something's changed in me and it's just happened that three of the greatest musicians in the world had it happen to them so that thing of the rawness the telepathy that they played with like this kind of like when we broke down the grooves in episode one you would think that we don't know this for sure i wasn't there obviously to see them prepare for the tour and stuff but from the way they play i just don't think they spent a lot of time like you play this groove and i'll play this groove like that's just not the way that those three play there was this sense of like rawness reckless no one cares we know we're great players we're going to go out we're going to play the music we love and then you start analysing it and you're like, this is some of the most complicated, incredible work I've ever seen. Like, you could take two bars of Wait Until Tomorrow. Even, like, in our episode one, when you break it down with just the ride. Yeah. I could groove on just that ride. And it's doing one rhythm. I know. How did they build such texture of sound from that? And then, of course, you listen to the kick drum pattern. And then you start to hear the placement of the snare. And you're like, oh, okay. And then you can feel where Pino and and Steve, uh, sorry, Pino and John, then finished up. I would love to know who started that though. I'd love to know who did it because I mean, obviously, it's a Hendrix cover. So John maybe said, "Oh, I've got this idea." Like obviously, that's the Hendrix thing. I wonder if they said, "Shall we do something different?" If anybody knows, can you please yeah. comment in? I would love to know if anybody knows how. Wait, um wait until tomorrow came about because to me it feels like masterclass in, in arrangement it's got it's got to be John has an idea then Steve Jordan lays that groove down yeah. and then Pino kind of like plays along it's, <laughs> Pino it's just got becomes to be Pino, yeah. the other thing that I've just clocked and I can't believe that I haven't yeah. realised this before that's probably the reason that we started our trio oh my god it is yeah that's totally it I've John never May thought of that before yeah because totally. When we were, so yeah. myself and Ben so true. are in a trio, a covers trio that we've done. I'm not just a covers trio because we've done you know, bits and bobs before. It's but corporate entertainment. Yeah. High quality stuff, mate. <laughs> High quality stuff. Sorry to all the companies. We play a few cover songs. <laughs> High quality stuff. But we've also like, you know, we've done a few original bits yeah. as well and stuff. But we're in a trio with um, one of our other best friends called uh, Nick Vary on guitar and vocals. And we were in function bands before with people that maybe we didn't want to be in a function band with a few wow, keys player. You should be a politician with the way that that was phrased. Wait <laughs> till wait till the nice. worst gigs episode God. because there'll be some function stories in there. But on like try not to get anyone in, in, anyone in trouble and just sort of on a serious note. But we we were in this one band with a keys player. Yeah, and it just wasn't working. No. And. I said to Ben and Nick, I think we can do this on our own. I think we can do this as a trio. And because we were so in love with the John Mayer trio, totally. I think we took a lot of inspiration from that. And I think as well, when we were kind of writing our arrangements and and sort of writing, well, figuring out how to do the songs as a trio, I took a lot of influence from Steve Jordan. Mate, I was channeling every bit yeah. of Pino I could. I think a lot of our sound probably comes from that rhythm section. Totally. That is so, yeah, I, I, you, yeah. yeah. God, that is so funny. Yeah, I've never made that connection actually until now as well. So so when you take all that into consideration, there could only be one band, 
one song, maybe there might have been three we could have chosen from. But this one for me, it's just not out there. I've looked for this song, yeah. people covering it. I've looked for transcriptions. I've looked for breakdowns. And from a bassist's perspective, it's very hard to hear on the mix. It's really quite buried in there. And so hopefully for bassists out there, having the notes down. Now, you won't get the full transcription. We haven't got, but I will link um, some transcriptions that other people have done because I want to share their work because it's really, really good. But um, that's full transcriptions. For us on Behind the Beat, we're doing Groove Breakdown. Hopefully, just by seeing the choices that Pino makes, you can then go and make it your own because like, yeah. there's definitely merit in learning something note for note, 100%. But then also, like, you then just become an emulator of that player. So if you can take his approach yes. and then go and play Pino Palladino on Wait Until Tomorrow style with someone else, you might find that that sort of groove, that sort of syncopation with the kick drum, that sort of phrasing fits really well with something else. And I think for me, if I could choose being an amazing reproducer at the highest level, so someone says, Ben, play I don't know, this Wolfpack line just like Joe Dart, or take Joe Dart's approach to something and put it on top of something that could work, I would always rather be better yeah, at that. You want to be your own player. You want to be your own player, your own voice and your own identity. So that for me was kind of like, let's help people out there Definitely. learn something amazing, but then make it their own. I think as well to reiterate what Ben said earlier, if you are interested in any of the four rhythm sections, and we're also going to record loads of other seasons as well. We've got a load of uh, other rhythm sections in the pipeline. But if you are interested in any of these four rhythm sections that we're talking about, my myself and Ben's company uh, behind the beat, We've got a Patreon page and you can basically subscribe. There's different packages, but you can subscribe. And we have the transcriptions. We have uh, traditional videos that are about 30 minutes in length, yep. writing, uh, breaking down all of the grooves that we're talking about um, for these rhythm sections. And also, I think the thing that's really I'm really excited about, to be honest, is we've got myself and Ben playing the parts at varied tempos. So, for example, I mean... When I was watching Ben play the bass, if I was a bass player, there's there's a lot going yeah, on there. So we've done different tempos, so a slower, medium, and then up to speed. So you can basically really get your teeth into this stuff, but it's not really intimidating because mm. these grooves are hard. And myself and Ben, we you know we we practice these a lot. We've studied these a lot, and it's quite. I think it's I think it's nice. I'm really excited totally. to release this stuff because it gives you the opportunity to to play them at a manageable tempo yeah. and then build yourself. You almost got goals, haven't you? It's like yeah. the start tempo, then the medium tempo, and then your goal tempo at the end. And the great thing is, we've actually recorded them ourselves. So bassists, you can play along to myself yeah. playing the parts at very tempos and drummers you can play along to just bass played by ben so i'm really excited to to release this patreon page and, and get this company going yeah and i think you know some people might be thinking oh wait it's just drum and bass there's no guitar there's no vocals in the backing track that's a deliberate thing like for us well first of all if you are a guitarist you could take both of our stems and play over the top so you can make your own backing track from that but we are really here to celebrate drums and bass and actually like bassists out there playing to just that drum part is such a joy because like when I listen to it, when we broke it down and I listened to John play it for the first time when we were sort of, we were planning to do like a little uh, taster video, weren't we? And mm. I remember you sending it over to me. I just listened to it and I was like, oh my God, this is so interesting already 
So the fact that the drums alone gave the song, I think that stuff is like so, so useful for bassists, like playing to drum grooves on their own. First of all, it helps you in the studio because, you know, most producers would probably want to record rhythm section live if they're going to do that sort of sound. So if you haven't done it before, that's going to be a challenge. Mm. So you're going to want to work with a drummer to get that kind of, there's nowhere to hide. It's just you two. You've got to know your parts. Um, but also it will really give you a totally different appreciation for things like note length, tone, feel, and it gives you something that's super secure as well. So yeah, there is no guitar and stuff like that, but that's by design mm. and we're very proud of that. I think also, mate, the other thing as well is with Behind the Beat, we're trying to encourage you to play with real life musicians. Yeah. So the stems are there as a learning tool but we encourage you to then take the skills that you've learned and the grooves that you've learned and play them with real life musicians. So get in a band, yeah. play as a trio, play with an actual guitarist, an actual singer and, you know, an actual bass player as well. And you can use these tools and, you know, use that bass line or that drum pattern to basically, you know, hone in your skills and learn the parts, but then take them out, take them out on the road, you know, go get together with other people and play. I want to try and get away from this backing track style yeah. stuff, you know. Get 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 in a room and play in a band. Like yeah. I used to love doing that when I was younger and I think you know, it, people are still doing it loads. Yeah, definitely. But I, I do see a slight shift and there's a lot yeah. of this kind of getting in a room playing on your own and it's so antisocial and also you're you're not getting that that kind of live experience skills yeah. that you should be getting from playing with other musicians. Well, you just don't you don't get any kind of um, nuance, variety, light and shade to your playing because you're just locked against constant pulse. And one of the things when we look at future rhythm sections is where pulse moves. Mm. It's not out of time, but pulse moves. It's an organic thing. Like, you know, at one stage we'll definitely do some sort of like the Neo Soul stuff, maybe Questlove and things like that. And like, you know, if you put that on grid, it won't work. If you put it into logic and go, well, let me just put that on the grid and make sure it's quantized. Don't! Don't do that because you will lose all the feel. But it's kind of that thing of, oh, it feels like it's almost out of time. Yeah, but that's feel. Like, it feels like something. And yeah, that snare might feel like it's just falling a bit behind. Or before the beat or behind the beat. Or, well, hey, behind the beat. See hey. what I did there? Um, but actually, that is feel. And when we work with our students and also... The other thing with Behind the Beat is that we do live tours of this. So we take this on the road. So if it's something you are interested in, the main thing we do on the road is get people up who may not have played with each other before mm -hmm. or who may be, you know, friends and at colleges and playing together. But that's what we focus on is like, how do you make this work? Because, yes, you have learned the part. Congratulations. You know how to play it. So why does it not work when you're playing it with another human? And I think that is kind of like... That is what this is about. And if we could do that forever, that's what we want to do, is help people to feel like we did when we first met each other. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's episode one. Nice. So what about episode two? We did probably our second favourite rhythm section. Who did we do, John? Who's episode two? So episode two was Brad Wilk and Tim Comerford from Rage Against the Machine. Ironically, another trio. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. Isn't that funny how, like, actually, well, you can tell how much trios have affected us in terms of, like, our passion and stuff. But 
Oh, what to say about Rage Against Machine, man? Well, a very different rhythm section. So we've gone from like groove maestros to hard hitting, very riff based uh, monsters, really. Yeah. What song did we choose? We did Balls on Parade. Well done. Uh, from nice uh, link there. Evil Empire, yes. second album. Again. You it, could choose so many I know. songs. It was it was with this one because I kind of grew up on Rage Against the Machine. There was, there was something their riffs just hit me different. It was they're amazing. They're just amazing, and I think there were so many songs we could have picked, but that one really stood out to me. And also, I think what I liked about this one, which was quite different from the Pino and Steve Jordan one, was the simplicity. Yeah, and I liked the fact because when we toured this, so myself and Ben toured last year and we did like a sort of like a beta tour basically to see whether people would enjoy this <laughs> and it worked really well and I think the thing that stood out for me for this song is it's so simple yet when we gave it to students they they really struggled right really because struggled. a lot of them put in things that didn't need to be there and also because it was quite simple playing together became an issue because there's actually quite a bit of space and you've mm-hmm. really got to be locked in with those unison hits because that, that riff, that they were kind of, they weren't so locked in and also it might take like eight bars for them to then sort of lock in together. Yeah. And I think what sort of struck me was that simplicity was actually probably more difficult than some of the Steve Jordan and yes. Pino stuff in terms of locking in. Yeah, The parts were you know, more difficult for the Steve stuff. But there was, I don't know, there was something about that one that, that stuck out and I was like, we have to do a video on this. I totally agree. And the other thing with that as well that I really noticed on the tour was the energy people yes. were playing with. It was so under what it needed to be. And I think that kind of comes from, you know, studying music, it can get quite academic and you're like, you know, this note must be this length. And, mm. you know, yes, there is definitely a thing about accuracy and things like that. But, for me, and, I, and again, you know, this might be 35-year-old me talking. Maybe when I was younger, I didn't feel like this. But context is everything. Mm. If you're playing Rage Against the Machine, you've got to bash the fuck out of that kit. Because those tunes, those, <laughs> those tunes, Jello. those tunes are, well, first of all, if you're not a fan of Rage Against the Machine or heard of them, go check them out. Because they're probably one of the most influential bands of all time. Yeah, they've influenced a lot of bands. Without them, we would not have a lot of music in that genre. They were the first kind of, or some of the pioneers of fusion of rap, hip-hop, and metal. Yep. In a trio. This is still three people. Um, But also, there was huge and incredibly important political lyrics behind that. This, This was not music for just to listen to. This was struggle. It was, this a, was protest a, music. A movement, right? A movement. This was about serious issues that were going on. And the way that Zach De La Rocha um, and Tim and Brad and Tom Morello, there you go. Well Thank you. Um, the way they approached that was to make music about it. And any of you who have seen the first album of Rage Against the Machine, just self-titled, called Rage Against the Machine, has got the picture of that Buddha who set himself on fire yes. in protest. Obviously. In, front of, in front of the tank, right? Yeah, in front of the tank or something, something like, that. like that. But basically it was a protest. He was like, I don't agree with what you're doing, so I'm going to set myself on fire. I mean, that's intense, right? So that was the whole thing. And like with Rage, I mean, 
Rage Against the Machine. What a title for yeah. a band. It couldn't sum up what they were doing better. So when you play a song like Balls on Parade and you go and listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics, you will see that Balls on Parade is about something that really means something. So when you play gaggle, gaggle, you're not just playing F to F, F to F in rhythms. You're playing someone's heart, you're playing someone's passion, you're playing someone's pain. So when students sit down and go, I'm like, yeah, it's right. You are playing the right notes. Fair play. But you're not playing the song. You're not playing what Rage are playing like. And if you don't get your headspace into these songs, you don't really ever learn them how they were intended to be learned. And I think that's kind of like, I don't know about you, but I find this with students a lot. They don't want to let go. They're too afraid of being, I don't know, like, Everything must be controlled. Everything must be right and tight. It's like, no, no, I want to see you smash that symbol up. We can work on the dynamics afterwards, but what I can't work with is no energy. Mm. Playing music like that. And I think for me, when we taught this, because it's two notes, I'm like, well, you don't need to look at your fretboard anymore, do you? Look at your drummer. Look out to the crowd. Be in this music. And they really struggled with it, which is so interesting because it's just two notes. It's an octave. And it's unison with drums. Definitely. I think there's something to be said as well. If you put a Rage track on, you instantly know it's them. There's yeah. nobody that does it like like, no. like Rage that like Rage do. It's yeah. basically like when, when you hear one of those riffs, there's no one else it can be. And yeah. I think even some of the heavier bands, no one's touched. You know, they didn't they got the Christmas number one? I know. Do you remember when that the, happened? To get the X Factor off. It Love was amazing. That. And again, isn't that just like such a message? It's like, fuck you, Simon Cowell. Yeah, literally, literally it's killing literally, in the name of. It was, <laughs> killing in the name of. It's like, we're going against everything you stand for, which was basically, he would just literally run the roost of like getting the Christmas number one every year. And he's yeah. like, people are sick of it. Yeah. So we're going to go against the system and try and get Christmas number one. And everyone got behind them and they did. Do you remember what happened when they won it? So as part of the thing, they had to perform live. I think it was on like ITV or something. But they said to them, well, obviously this is the song that's won the Christmas number one. But you can't do the bridge. You can't say, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. And Zach De La Rocha was like, of course, no. Oh, absolutely. amazing. And of course it was live. And as soon as they got to that section, they just did it anyway. Oh, and I think they pulled it sort of like, I don't know, 30 seconds into it. But it was it was completely like... Are you kidding? Do you know like do you know what we have done to get <laughs> yeah, to this exactly. point? And you're like, well, you can't say fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. It's like this whole song is fuck you, I yeah. won't do what you tell me. And I just love that. I love they're like, of course we won't do that. No, no, we understand. It's a show, it's a show, and then it's just like, fuck you. It's just yes! It's Come on, Zach. So much more of a message. And also it's amazing. just by them doing that, they've just you know, they've done exactly what they intended to do. Exactly. So I have massive respect to those guys. Yeah, I think. Yeah, what you just said there is like, it just throws up one word to me. It's authentic. Yeah. They are the most authentic energy you can hear in that sort of music. Like, and what I loved about doing Balls on Parade was, so we go from that intro where we've just sort of spoke about the simplicity and power of, of unison riffs. And then you get the verse and you get this like... Yeah, space. Oh, this spacious groove. And of course, the one thing we don't have on our tracks, which obviously we always say when we we speak about them, is just think where the vocal sits on this. Mm. And when you listen to the groove in the verse of um, Balls on Parade, everyone's just like, oh, yeah, just bobbing along because it's got that lovely feel. But then, of course, 
you put Zach's vocal on top and it just takes on this whole new rhythmic texture. And you think, okay, imagine being in the room when he was saying those lyrics. And like Brad and Tim and Tom, Brad and Tim and Tom were like going, okay, here's the groove. Oh, this is he. We're passionate about this stuff. I don't know if you've picked up on it, but like, <laughs> I just, I just get so, oh, like, I feel that music so deeply when I think about what it must have been like to play that music under those lyrics for the first time. I yeah. just, oh, there's oh. something about that band as well. Like, I'm just thinking of some of their other songs. Like, you know, when I've seen them play before, and there's dun 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 dun, <sighs> and the crowd goes ballistic you know that you've written an absolute banger. Yeah. When you can play like essentially a couple of notes and everyone knows what's coming Mate. and like, you know, 30, 40,000 people lose their mind, yeah. you know you're on to success. And like, I think with Bulls on Parade as well, just that opening, is it a flam? Yeah, uh, yeah flam. It's just lit one hit. I know that that's Bulls riff. on Parade. Yep. Yeah. Dano, you're just like, ah! And like you're Straight right. In. If your ideas are so strong, you can play one yeah. note and someone goes, it's Balls on Parade. Yeah. Or not even that. It's Rage Against the Machine. I know which album. I know what vibe they're going for. So It's right. crazy, man. Think about this. So if you think about some of the best drum intros of all time, like we've got the uh, the one from, is it Rock With You? Dagger 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 by uh, J.R. Robinson, I think is that so, his name? yeah, yeah. Um, amazing drummer. I'm so sorry if I've got that wrong, but I think it is. So that's, I mean, that's a beautiful fill. Yeah, and beautiful. obviously like perfect for that context. When you've got one hit, just a flat, <laughs> well, essentially two hits, but a flam on the snare, it's just, it's amazing. It's genius, and I don't know. There's something about this song that really kind of speaks to me, and I think that's why we picked it. Definitely. And they're just. They're a band that need to be celebrated, hence again why we picked it. And I think it's nice to get that contrast between the first rhythm section and the second rhythm section. Definitely. We've got like groove maestros and then super heavy unison. But it's like, it's super heavy, but it's also super funky as well and oh. really groovy. And I think that's another thing to kind of talk about, I suppose, on maybe another episode, but maybe mm. a little bit now is just because something is heavy... Or, or, you know, loud doesn't mean that it doesn't groove. And I think so sometimes true. when people play in like really heavy rock bands and stuff, they they think that there's there's no groove there and they just kind of play so loud Ugh. and, and there's, it loses all of its feelings. So I think the thing I love, love about Rage is that, yes, it's really impactful, it's super powerful, it's super heavy, but there's so much groove to it. And that's why... It's, it's that kind of, you know, that verse groove where everyone's kind of like bopping around. There's a real groove to it. It's kind of like almost like a funk song. Yeah. Mate, the displacement in that kick drum pattern mm. is like, well, first of all, it's like a loop. Yeah. So you've got that kind of loop crossover hip hop thing. Repetitive sort of nature. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's so funky. And then it's so heavy. Mm. And I just think like, because we can only choose one song sometimes, we want to leave you with okay if you only heard and played this you have got the essence of what these players were like and yes we could have done bomb track we could have done freedom we could have done um sleep now in the fire you know insert There's incredible loads. and then all the audio slave stuff as well because that was very much transported with with chris cornell um gosh what a loss to our industry that was yeah that was sad um but if you take away just that from balls on parade you get the essence of rage and I think that for us is kind of like 
yes, we could have chosen lots of different songs, bomb track, blah, blah, blah. But we wanted to give you something that if you only heard that, you would leave with with that nature of what that really was. Um, so that mention of groove leads us beautifully into the third one, which is probably the grooviest rock rhythm section. I mean, Zeppelin is definitely up there and we'll be doing that at some point. But this one, this yeah. one hurt and also was amazing yeah so what was episode three we had for the first season we we had to to pick these guys really and um well he was alive at this point he he was when yeah. we started and this he was alive. actually that's that's very true so yeah. basically we, the 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 third one is is taylor hawkins and nate mendel and really really it, it was actually kind of strange because we we picked these guys we shot the video and then we found out obviously that taylor hawkins had passed away and i was absolutely devastated and mm. i think this is kind of, you know, testament to how amazing he was. I think the drum community was absolutely devastated as well. And also not even the drum community, like just people in general, you know, mm. like non-musicians, musicians, whatever. And it was so sad. And I think one thing that I've learned from kind of, you know, his passing is that if you want to go and see a band, go and see them. Yeah, don't wait because so there's true. been quite a few people recently like I really wanted to go and see Prince and I was like oh, I'll go and see him next year then he passed away sadly I've always wanted to go and see the Foo Fighters and I've never seen them and then Taylor Hawkins passed mm-hmm. away it's uh if you if you're really passionate about music and you want to go and see a band just buy the tickets and mm-hmm. go and see the gig because you never know and it was you know especially when they were on tour as well they were mid-tour and he passed away on the tour and it's uh yeah, it's really sad. And I mean that memorial concert at Wembley Stadium, ninety thousand people and his his son getting up and playing Next a hero. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like for him? You've lost your dad and then you're you've got to get up with, you know, his best friends like Dave mm-hmm. Grohl and all the other members of the Foo Fighters and play a song called Hero to 90,000 people in a packed out stadium where mm. everyone's probably super emotional. Mm. It's also being filmed. Yeah. I mean, the pressure. And he absolutely nailed it. And the scariest thing was about that, it looked like his dad. And like, sounded like and his And sounded dad. like his dad. It was, there were so many things he was doing. I was like, oh my God, that's yeah. Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. And also, like, he was grieving too. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know about you, but like, I'm... I've been to a, a few funerals in my life and they've all been obviously pretty savage. But the thought of having to do something other than be there and cry. Mm. Now, I know it wasn't a funeral, but it was pretty close to that in terms of that concert. I remember when I, w- I woke up that morning, I looked on Instagram and obviously it was everywhere. Yeah. And I got up, I was I went to the shower and I put on one song and that's Aurora from there's nothing left to lose and i cried yeah i cried in the shower because now that song for foo fighters foo fighters fans out there probably not the taylor hawkins song that most people would choose but for me that song represents a really specific time in my life um and it goes in so many different areas that song for me and i remember listening to it thinking we've just lost something out of our industry we've lost Mm. something out of music like one of the stars has fallen so i felt the same way when chester bennington died in lincoln park because that was my childhood basically lincoln park and 
you know, obviously people get old, they die. I get that. It's life. But is the he, circumstances he was fifty for that? Yeah, he was fifty, and he was so good. It, it, I'm actually I'm I'm actually struggling a little bit here. I just I just when you were talking, I was just sort of thinking like, God, it's really it's really hard. It's yeah. really hard, and I'm so glad we did this episode, yeah. and we never knew. Um, and yeah. That, so what bre- song did we do? <laughs> we did the Pretender. Oh God, and also yeah. so. Breaking down those parts, I've always like worshipped Taylor Hawkins. I think his energy and his power and also his sort of technical ability behind his instrument is incredible. But when we broke down the parts, I think we realised actually how intricate they are and how amazing they are. And I, we're actually doing the Pretender with some of our students oh, for yeah, their live performance up, yeah. class. And I was showing the drummers uh, some of the transcriptions the other day, and I don't think they'd realised as well. And the thing that Taylor Hawkins did so well, and I mean all the Foo Fighters, is to play beautiful songs with intricate parts, with power and speed. Yeah. And and also, like, metronomic timing yeah. as well. That's really hard to do. And I think, actually, although... All of the rhythm sections that we picked were, you know, had their own challenges. For me, this was probably one of the most tricky. Yes. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. The thing with the Foo Fighters is there's just so much you could talk about the Foo Fighters. We could do a whole episode on just the Foo Fighters. Like going back to your point about uh, heaviness and groove. So you've got that layer. So you've got like, so if something's heavy, it also has to have some groove. But one thing that the Foos have, and I think this really shows in The Pretender, they're so musical. Mm. They're so musical. And obviously they are. Dave Grohl, Taylor, Chris, Nate, and I can never remember the other extra guitarist. But they are all musicians. So they're writing commercial songs, obviously. But when you look at songs like The Pretender, but also like the early stuff, obviously the big hits, Everlong, blah, blah, blah. But they're heavy as hell, some of the best songwriting in rock yeah 100%. ever generally and when we went through the pretender i was like okay bass wise admittedly it's nothing special at first it's just dada 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 because that's always needed it's heavy as hell then you get to this chorus and you're like again i would love to have been there and gone hang on a minute who decided to crash in on the four and make it feel like the time had been displaced because when we did the analysis of that on bass, I was like, oh, <laughs> bit of a bubble from the old water. I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. No, it can't be that because then it feels like it's not in four anymore. And then I was like, oh, no, it is. But they've just done this weird displacement thing. I thought, hang on a minute, this is a pop song. Yeah. Re- Pretend it's yeah, like yeah, a pop yeah. rock song. So then we did the analysis and I was like, oh, this is next level good. And with Nate's playing, Nate is just one of those classic rock bassists who no one will really ever know. But if those lines weren't played by him, those songs wouldn't work. He is so good at fitting in the Foo Fighters because that is a tough chair to walk into. Remember, Dave Grohl was playing with, um, what's his name, from Nirvana for most of his career. And then you walk in and go, yeah, hi, I'm Nate. I'm here to play. And obviously, like, that he's done an amazing job, but what a pressure. But he fa- he has, like, carved his own niche because, you know, bassists out there who play with plectrums, for example, 
know that, you know, you've got some big heavy hitting names there. A lot of the metal guys, um, you know, Duff McKeegan from Guns N' Roses jumps to mind, Phil Lineup from Thin Lizzy, people like that. But Nate has got this whole unique feel with bass. And one thing I love about his playing and that really shows on The Pretender is that he understands bass almost like a producer. So he puts fills in and you're like, that's just made the song. And it's so simple, or it's not, it's so super complicated, but it never ever detracts from the sound. And it's a massive sound, it's like three guitars or four guitars layered up, you've got the vocals, you've got the BVs, and then the bass just kind of brings all of that energy up. And I've just, I have such a respect for Nate Mendo, and I would love to, he's on my list of people to meet, I would love to ask him some questions about mm. like how he approaches that, his rock playing, and yeah, so... For me, I was like, this is a masterclass in rock bass playing. And that I was so pleased we did that one. So much to take away from it. And it's bloody hard yeah. to play that level. And Can you imagine yeah. doing that? So that was one song. Can you imagine doing that for like... They, I mean, their gigs are long oh, as well. Can you imagine doing gigs. that for a whole gig? Uh, yeah, no, exactly. I think it's one of those things where... Again, you know the foods are great, but then you study them and you're like, oh, they're even better than I thought. So that's why they were episode three. Lovely stuff. So moving on to the final episode of season one for Behind the Beat. We picked UK Rhythm Section, Nick Van Gelder and Stuart Zender from Jamiroquai. That's right. And there's some very interesting little story around this one because we first thought that this was played by Derek McKenzie, who obviously is closely and forever really been linked to Jamiroquai for most people mm -hmm. but we found out that wasn't the case <laughs> and we'd already done the video and been like yeah so Derek would really do this and oh my god Derek's choices blah 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 and then we found out that it wasn't him and how did we find that out? Yeah so basically we had a little bit of a shocker so uh, basically well it's quite hard nowadays to find out who is on records right from different eras basically really different, different decades because yeah. you haven't got the sleeves anymore right you know you used to have like you used to look in the album and there'd be who's on the record who's mixed it and all that sort of stuff so i i just maybe maybe sort of naively presumed that it was Derek mckenzie yeah but it wasn't it was nick van gelder so the, the way we found this out uh i i play and i have done for about sort of six or seven years for american disco band odyssey and interesting story, Derek McKenzie actually depped for me for a gig. And so I thought, well, as he's depping for me, I'm going to reach out. And he's actually one of my idols and heroes. So I thought, you know, good good sort of opportunity to, to reach out to him. Absolutely. So I messaged him. I was like, hey, Derek, thanks so much for depping on Odyssey for me. Just so you know, my uh, myself and my business partner, Ben Jones, we've just started a company. And we're actually <laughs> analysing one of your grooves from Too Young to Die. And he got back to me and was like, that's not me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, like, shit. <laughs> okay, so Oops. I was like, who is it? And he was like, oh, it's Nick Van Gelder. So I was like, okay, you know, great. And he was very um, yeah. sort of, you know, humbled and and uh, very sort of loving that we'd we'd done that. But it was actually Nick Van Gelder. And yeah. I, it's, it's weird because even when I listen to it now, I still think it's Derek McKenzie. Yeah. But it wasn't. But we picked Too Young to Die. Just because it's such an iconic song for me, yeah. The it's quite interesting as well that the, the sections are quite odd lengths, and also 
the grooves, especially for there's that kind of repeated riff on bass, but the the drum grooves are very very yeah. uh, in depth, Amazing. and there's a lot going on. And there's kind of a few sort of repeated. There's like mm-hmm. a kind a kind of main theme and repeated patterns, but there's a lot of intricacies and embellishments that happen in certain places and then don't happen again. And it's it's a real groove-based song. And because Jamiroquai is such an iconic UK-based yeah. kind of uh, artist, I thought we have to do something UK-based. So yeah. that's why we picked those. For sure. And like, I think, God, when we were doing the uh, analysis of this, and I, li- I listened to the drum part when you were playing it, I was like... It's involved, isn't oh it? Oh my God, it's amazing. And so... I mean, in the nicest possible way. Weird. Mm. It's got some really weird choices, but not weird at all, because when you hear it with the bass line, you're like, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's what it is. But when you hear it at first, you're like, oh, like open hi-hats happening in weird places and mm. like unexpected sort of syncopated grooves. But like it is a, I mean, it's probably the hardest one of season one to get like every bit of detail down. Yeah. It's really involved. When, when we were recording this in the studio, I, I think it took us quite a few takes just because I wanted to yeah. get every little bit in there, every little ghost note, and I was kind of reading the transcription yeah. at the same time that we charted out and stuff. And for me, trying to get every little bit in there whilst playing it within the style and then playing with you yeah. and grooving, it's really hard. And like I encourage you as well, if you're, you know, if you decide to come on board with behind the beat and, and try and learn some of these rhythm sections, really take the time to study every kind of little bit of these grooves, because that's what makes them so good. Mm. And I think there's no point learning them really if you're not gonna, you know, no. do it properly and really take the time because you'll get so much out of it as well if you yeah. really kind of, you know, sort of um dive in that's the word dive in and look at all these little bits because it's beautiful arrangement and also beautiful construction of grooves as well yeah definitely and i i completely agree with that i think for the bass side um i mean Stuart zender one of the best Mm. i mean one of the best uk exports and then one of the best bassists outside of the uk as well like some of his lines like again we could have chosen so many jamiroquai songs we could have done virtual insanity we could have done space cowboy all these classics but there's something about this particular groove first of all it's a really bass heavy song so i indulged a little bit and thought yeah 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 let's do that one but i think with zender's playing i got into zender really late as well like uh, i had a a friend on the degree program who was a Zender freak, like him and Prince were his two favorite bass players, basically, and Les Claypool as well. And I never really got it, but then I got into it later on and I was like, wow, this is so good. And I think for bassists, like what you'll get from this song is you'll understand, first of all, how to write an incredibly commercial sounding bass line Mm -hmm. under, you know, a really interesting vocal. Um, but also there's a lot of crossover between him um, and you can tell Jacko Pastorius' influence, particularly in the chorus. Um, and it's a handful, man. It's a real handful on bass, this one. And like, it's a masterclass in note length. It's a masterclass in feel. It's a masterclass in raking. It's a masterclass in dead notes. And these, they may only happen for like a fraction of a beat. But like... If you get them down, that's in your technique arsenal now. That's in the bag. You can have that and it will show up in different ways. So I was really, same as you. I mean, when we recorded this, we did it all in a day. We did three in one day. And I don't know if it was smart or not, but we chose Jamiroquai last. And I remember thinking, oh, 
this is hard and yeah. I need to really focus now. And actually, when we listen back to the videos, when we got the edits back, I'm so proud of that video because it really did work. Um, so it's one of those like, take the time, do it properly and you'll get so much out of it. And we just wanted to, I want to really shout out a UK home, you know, rhythm section. Um, but and some of you may not have heard this song before. So again, even if you don't know Jamiroquai, check it out because it's an amazing tune. Uh, but there's loads and loads to take away from it. And that kind of wraps up season one. So we obviously only started with the first four episodes. As John said earlier, this is just the beginning. We know there are so many rhythm sections emerging now older ones that we didn't get a chance to do so this really is the start but hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into why we chose it might inspire you to come and check them out um obviously through patreon and stuff like that through our behind the beat which will all be in the show notes uh links to everything we've mentioned as well people we've mentioned in there we'll tag their instagram handles all that stuff so you can find the people we've spoken about today but before we go what are you taking away from today? What's been like your takeaway from this session? Because, you know, we've spoken a lot. I learned loads that I didn't know today as well. What are you taking yeah. away? I think, to be honest, it's just got me really excited to do season two. And I yeah. feel like revisiting maybe why we picked these rhythm sections yeah. has been really important for me today because, you know, we recorded these a little while ago. So it's yeah. nice to kind of revisit that. And I think as well, I didn't clock that potentially we started the trio because of the influence from Steve Jordan and Pina Palladino. So yeah. that's been really interesting for me. What about you? I think um, just uh, the emotion of some of these. And, and it's funny, like, you yeah. know, we talk about this all the time and now we're sat here pressing record and suddenly it all feels different. But like, yeah, this music really means a lot to me and I'm actually really incredibly um, humbled by the fact that we've now got something that we can listen back to and remind ourselves of just what it was like to to hear this music for the first time and the impact it had on us. And yeah, that was it, because when we were talking about Taylor Hawkins, I was staring down here at the desk just sort of thinking, I could cry right now. It's just, it really, it really hit me and I think that's, I'm so, so grateful for that. Um, but yeah, so that's my takeaway. So I suppose we should say our goodbyes. Indeed, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. As always. Thanks for everyone for listening. And we will see you on the next episode. Take it easy. Peace. You've been listening to Beats and Best Friends, a Behind the Beat production. It was recorded at ICMP Queen's Park. The intro music features John Harris on drums, Ben Jones on bass, Adam Goldsmith on guitar and Nick Ferry on keyboards. Thanks for stopping by and we'll see you on the next session.